All right. Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Um, you know, as as much as I teach, I don't actually preach very much. Um, and there's two reasons why I don't like preaching. One is because the pulpit's always so high, so nobody can see me. And I always have to stand here, which means I can't see my notes. <laughs> but the other reason is that because preaching takes so much time to prepare for. Um, you know, sometimes I would spend days on, even weeks on, to prepare to speak for 45 minutes, and it's very stressful. And this time, it's particularly more stressful for me because um, normally, I know, I know what I want to preach about a month before I come up, at least a month. And in the last month, I just spent time thinking about my topic over and over again, praying about it. And by the week before, I'm already prepared, ready to go. I know what special music I want to sing. I know what closing song I want. I even know an opening song. I know exactly what I'm going for. But this time, however, even up to the night before last night, I was really, really struggling about what to talk about. And I realized that God allowed me to struggle this time to go through this just so that I can share it with you today. Why? But first, as always, before we attempt to even talk about spiritual things, let's invite God into our presence to make sure that it's God talking. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for allowing me to come up to your pulpit to speak. I am not worthy nor qualified to stand here, and nor do I personally enjoy it. But I thank you because I recognize that it is a privilege to stand here. Please, please give me a Holy Spirit. Put your words in my mouth that I may not speak, but rather allow you to speak through me. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. title of my sermon today is Get Real. Now let me ask you this question. Um, have you ever struggled with feelings of shame, low self-worth, or a feeling of God's disapproval? Or what about you struggled with um, these thoughts of I'm never going to have victory over sin, struggled with I'm not like the other goody-two-shoes in church, struggled with God is so ashamed of me? Have you ever said these words, I feel like I'm a mess, I'm a wretch, I'm hopeless, I might as well live a sin-filled life because I'm never going to be over, able to overcome this? Or perhaps, and this is the more scary thing, you said this, I like it, I don't want to overcome it. I know that I should, I know that I have to, but I like it and I enjoy it. I don't want to give it up. I, I don't know why I'm even sitting here in church. I feel like I'm such a hypocrite and I know people know I'm sinning and they judge me for that. But if I know I don't come to church, you're going to judge me even more. And you hear these thoughts that you're nothing but a loser or that God doesn't love you, God has precious ministry, missionary, full-time workers in church, faithful believers. You are reading your Bible but you don't change, you're wasting your time, it works for everyone else, but it doesn't work for you. Have you ever struggled with these thoughts before? Now, betting is not Christian, but just as a figure of speech, if I could bet, I would bet that everyone here has somehow in their life struggled with this before. And if you're sitting there and you're sort of like shaking your head and saying, mm, I don't really relate to that, then either you've forgotten or you're just really stubborn and you just don't want to be real and admit that these are actual human struggles. And I find that this is a big problem in our church because we spend so much time, so much effort going out to win, people's, to win people outside of the church when people in our church, people who are our friends, 
within these doors are suffering, are neglected, are left out and are judged. And for these people who are struggling, when you, when you react to them and you say, no, God can fix everything, you need to repent, why can't you just surrender? That response hurts them even more and pushes them further away. You know, we look at leaders in our church and we look and they look like they're all so perfect. You know, everyone, I'm sorry, every week someone's up here praising God for some miracle they experience. Every week someone is up here um, praising God for, um, for, for something wonderful that happened during, to them during the week. Or someone's up here preaching about how wonderful God is during the sermon. Someone is doing something great every week. And for those who are, for us, for us who are really, really struggling, it can become so discouraging and it becomes embarrassing because I don't want to admit that I'm struggling with something. I don't want to admit that I need help, that everyone in church is, gonna, is, is better because if I admit that, I'm just going to get the same response that everyone is going to give me, that I need to repent if I want salvation. So I'm going to talk first to the group that's struggling, to those who are struggling. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to summarize really quickly. But if you read through Jeremiah chapter 18 from verse 5 to 12, God tells the story of the potter. And he's saying here, look, if you let me mold and shape you, if you come back and repent, I can make something good out of your life. Now look at how the people respond in verse 12. And they said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices and we will, everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. This is KJV. If you're not understanding what this means, let me paraphrase. Um, basically, their response was, we are hopeless. We will walk according to our own plans and everyone will obey the desires of his own heart. Now, God is promising here in Jeremiah 18 that if you repent and come back, God can make something new out of your life. But these people... And perhaps everyone at one point has felt that you've gone so far that you can't anymore. You've done it all. You know Daniel and Revelation. You know the 1844. You know the 2300 days. You know seven last plagues. You know the doctrines. Man, you can even teach the doctrines. And you know you need to repent, but you can't, you won't, you don't want to. And this is a scary thing to admit, that you don't want to repent because you like your sin. And you know it's important to do your devotion. So you try to read the Bible, you try to pray, but you cling on to your sin because it's nice. Get real. Sin feels nice or nobody would do it. Sin makes you happy, happier than you feel when you're actually doing things for God and suffering when you do things for God. So the first step actually for those who are suffering is to get real. In what sense? You know, God knows everything. So don't you know God knows that you want to give up? Don't you know that? Don't you think that God knows you're struggling, but you don't want to struggle and you just want to, you know, give in? God knows it all. But you need to get real for yourself to admit to yourself that you don't want to give up your sin. And here's what I want to define now, because some of it may be a bit confusing. And I know, I think some of it, you may have heard of this before, but I'm just going to rehash it real quickly. When it comes to feeling bad for something, um, there are two definitions that we need to clarify with. Um, that's the real issue. Um, it's understanding what guilt means and understanding what shame means. 
I think some of you may have heard this before. So there's guilt, there's shame, and then there's the issue of condemnation and conviction. Many big words, but I'll go slow, don't worry. Okay, so guilt. Guilt means, guilt is the feeling that I've done something wrong. Shame is the feeling of I am something wrong. Do you see the difference there? Guilt is the feeling that I've done something wrong. Okay, I've made a mistake. Shame is the feeling of I am something wrong, I am the mistake. Do you see that? For those of you who think you're not struggling with any stuff in life, I need you to notice this as well because how you understand this affects how you treat people who are struggling with this. Shame, sorry, guilt. I feel bad that I did something wrong, but by the grace of God, this will not be the story for my whole life. And this will not be my story forever. But shame, I am nothing but an addict. I am nothing but a sinner compared to I am struggling with sin. And there's a big difference between these two because guilt is something that is healthy. Guilt is something that leads us to Christ, the very one who died for our wrongdoing. And we need this accountability, we need this balance, we need this feeling of guilt because that's what points us to Christ. But shame, on the other hand, fills us with unworthiness and unhealthy views that it keeps us away of Christ because we think that he doesn't love me anymore because I'm a mistake. We think that God wants nothing to do with me because I am something wrong. I am not normal. I am not a good Christian. God uses one. Sorry. God uses one. And Satan uses the other. Conviction and condemnation come from these as well. Conviction comes from guilt. And condemnation comes from shame. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit. You know, in John 16, verse 7 and 8, where it says, after Jesus goes away, the Comforter will be sent, right? And in verse 8, he says, When the Comforter is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's how you feel convicted that you did something wrong. That feeling comes from God. Um, to tell us that there's a Savior who wants to transform our lives. That's healthy. But condemnation, the feel of shameful, the feel that you're something wrong, that leads to thoughts that you're not good, you're never going to be enough, God doesn't like you, you're wasting your time, you're trying to be good. You're reading your Bible, but when you read your Bible, you're no different from what you were yesterday. So what is the point of even trying anymore? Why continue? Satan gives us this feeling of shame by making us sin, making us fall into um, failure, and then convincing us to believe that we are the failure. He creates these lies, he throws them into our hearts and minds. And this feeling of shame is not a very nice feeling to have. Now, I'm going to show you some pictures of shame, okay? And I hope you can take it. Just steady your hearts. This is shame. I ate a bottle of glitter and now my poop sparkles. <laughs> this is shame. I steal the socks and I eat them. This is shame. This is public shaming. I collect underwear just like my dogs do as well. As Sunny can testify. <laughs> I tried to eat Jesus. But this is shame. This is what... He, oh, okay, for, for those who don't have dogs, you might not find this, find this funny. But those who have dogs, this is hilarious. So, <laughs> yeah. This is what dog owners do to publicly shame their animals when they do something wrong. But I'm just glad that God doesn't do this to us. Because imagine that every single time you sinned, you had to hold up a sign in church for every sin you committed. 
Can you imagine walking in the door with a sign around your neck that you committed adultery? I cheated on my wife. Or with a sign that says, I watch porn. You commit fornication. Or when you walk through the door and you have a sign that says, I told a lie. Or, I'm sorry. (laughs) Or I broke the Sabbath. You come through those doors and you're holding up all these signs and you're watching people judge you based on the sins you commit. I don't read my Bible. You'd wonder why you ever even come to church if people will judge you all the time and you start to hate church. And then you even think, how can God love me after I walk through these doors with all these sins? Now, thankfully, God doesn't treat us this way. He doesn't deal with us this way. When you hear these voices, when you think you walk through those doors and all a person can see is that you're a sinner, all the person can see is that you have sin, that you're nothing but a loser, that feeling that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't want to take you back, you're long far gone, you're reading your Bible, you're not changing, you're wasting time, it works for everyone else, but it doesn't work for you. Those feelings, those voices don't come from God. Those voices are set up to allow you to feel that you need to run far away from God. And you're not just feeling guilty, you're feeling ashamed. Like how Eve felt in the beginning when she hid from God at the very first sin. The question is though, have you confessed your sin? Now this is one question that, you know, sometimes I really, really hate as well. Because this question of have you confessed your sin, have you confessed your sin, while it pricks the heart, right? Sometimes the last thing I need to know or the last thing I need to hear when I'm sinning is a hammer to my heart to tell me that I am a sinner. And it sounds wrong for me to say this, right? To, you know, that we shouldn't tell people they're a sinner in the name of Christ. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that sin is okay. I'm not saying that we should condone sin and, you know, just allow everyone in church to run rampant. I am saying, saying love the sinner but hate the sin. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say because when people struggle with sin, most of the time for Christians, they already know it's sin. They already know that they need to repent. They already need to confess. Or rather, I should say, we already know we need to confess and we already need to repent. We know already. Remember my first step? My step one, get real. If we know we need to confess and repent and we don't want to, get real And admit to yourself and be honest to yourself because honestly, that's the only thing that you need to do. Because step two is much, much simpler. In, yeah, wrong one. I don't have that verse here, do I? No, I don't have it. Okay, so in, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Acts (laughs) 5.31. Um, This verse reads, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So who gives repentance according to this verse? Sorry? Christ. Jesus. Um, So do you know why you don't want to repent, you don't want to confess, you don't want to give up your sin? Because repentance comes from Jesus. The human heart does not want to repent. That desire, even the want, that desire comes from Jesus. And I want to tell you today that while it's not okay to sin, 
it's normal to struggle with sin. It is normal to struggle with overcoming it and God doesn't hate you because you are struggling. In fact, praise God that you are struggling and you're still here. So step two is just telling God that you need His help to even want to give up sin. Tell God, be real, be honest, it's God. He knows already. You tell God, I like this thing I'm holding on to. I like it. It makes me happy. It makes me unfulfilled. Sorry. I am unfulfilled. I am lonely. I am bored with life when I try to give this up because this is my happy place. You tell God that, you know, all, all of this. And it's not as if it's new. He knows. But you tell God so you can ask Him, God, while I am struggling with this, I know I need and I want salvation because I've gone far from when I first loved Christ, please, please give me repentance. Please give me the desire to give up my sin. Give me the want to give up whatever I'm holding on to. And you know, it's, it's so common for us in church to say that the first step to confession and repentance is willingness. But for many, many, many of us, we are not even willing to give up sin. But does that mean that there's no hope? We are not willing, we don't want to give it up. So step two is to ask. To ask that God will give you that willingness. Step one, be real. To honest, be honest to yourself that you have a problem. And step two, ask God to give you that willingness if you are not. And you know, there's no step three and there's no step four. Because this is all you need to do. But it all starts with being real. Now, I need to speak to those who are sitting here and shaking their heads at, at, at people who are struggling with sin. You know, I know some people have this mindset of if you are struggling with sin, you just don't read your Bible. You're just not trying hard enough. You're just, it's just, just a problem with you. You don't want to surrender. And this is, it's these kind of ideas that really chase people out of the church. And this is a quote I want to share with you from Manuscript 133, September 20, 1899. This says, It is the greatest and most fatal deception to suppose that a man can have faith unto life eternal without, notice this, possessing Christ-like love for his brethren. You know, many a time when Christians leave church, it is because they feel no love in the church. They see leaders, professed believers doing miracles after miracles, bringing in people after people, you know, doing all these wonderful things, praising God, and then they wonder, why am I not cared for? Why am I not someone that these people would pray for? Why am I not someone that our leaders would visit? Because our leaders are perfect. They are goody two-shoes. They are Sabbath keepers. They don't want me even to associate with me. They don't want to talk about what I like to talk about. They don't like to do what I like to do. They are holy, righteous, faithful churchgoers. I'm not talking about anyone here. I'm just giving an example, okay? <laughs> but really, are we? Now, the first thing I want to point out is that you cannot look at your leaders in church because leaders struggle as well. Do not, do not compare yourself to church leaders because you do not know what happens behind closed doors. And leaders, it is important for us not to put up a facade and snide and look down on people when they struggle because many a time, and I'll be honest, it comes across as our church does not care. Our church does not really care. Our church judges, our church reproves, our church is great at correcting, our church holds up the Bible, holds up the Ten Commandments, and that is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But it is not great when our members feel like the church does not care when we struggle. 
Because then, if it looks like we don't care, because, sorry, because it looks like we don't care and all we do is correct people and tell them they're wrong, our members don't look for counsel when they need help. Because they're ashamed of what the church may say. They're afraid the church will gossip, will talk about them. They're afraid the church will tell them what they already know and look at them like as if they left God and they are lost. You know, I understand why Adventists in general are viewed as very judgmental. And before I became an Adventist, I attended Adventist church a few times before going overseas. And I remember the one and only impression that I had of the Adventist church that I was telling my friends and my parents was, why is the SDA church so judgmental? Why are they... Or why do they always think that they're right and everyone else is wrong? Do they not even have the heart to listen? Now, we all have struggles going on. And while I am not saying confess your sins publicly in corporate prayer, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying to take the mic during praise and prayer and tell everyone what you did during the week. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we need to have an authentic community in the church. We talked about this in strategy meeting. And, you know, we talked about being genuine. We need to start being real. No more fake stuff, no more hypocrisy. We need to have an authentic community. Because the last thing that a person who's struggling needs is a hammer to remind him of how bad his sin is, of how bad a person he is. That person instead needs to know, where can I go for power to get out of this situation. They are not coming to you to tell to, for, because they need to be told that they are sinners. They're not coming to you because they need to be reminded that they need to repent and confess when they don't want to. It is because they need help. And it's because they need help. So I am challenging us as a church, and myself included, to create an authentic community. And it needs to start one by one. With me, I mean me and me, all of us, I, you need to say this, I need to be the one creating it. It starts with me. And you need to be real. Be real with what? That people struggle with different things. People struggle with video games. People struggle with sexual immorality, with porn. People struggle with alcohol. People struggle with self-harm, cutting themselves. People struggle with pride. And all you have to do is not tell them that they're wrong because they probably already know. All you have to do is just listen. You know, when Jesus met this woman in adultery in John 8, verse 10 and 11, let me read it. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, Jesus, when looking at the woman caught in adultery, he did not tell her, Woman, adultery is wrong. You're a sinner. Repent. Confess. He didn't say that to her. Instead, he told her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Did he say sinning was okay? Did he say sinning was okay? No, he said, go and sin no more. But he also told her, neither do I condemn thee. So if Jesus didn't condemn, neither should we. 
This is a quote. It's a bit long, but it's very, very, very interesting. I think I need to read the whole thing. So this is from Early Writings, page 102. It says, Confessing your own mistakes encourages a spirit of confession in your church. Those who profess to be servants of the living God must be willing to be servants of all, instead of being exalted above the brethren. And they must possess a kind, courteous spirit. If they err, they should be ready to confess thoroughly. We're here in the middle. Honesty of intention cannot stand as an excuse for not confessing errors. Now, this is the interesting part that I find really spoke to me. Confession would not lessen the confidence of the church in the messenger, and he would set a good example. A spirit of confession would be encouraged in the church, and sweet union would be a result. Those who profess to be teachers should be patterns of piety, meekness, and humility, possessing a kind spirit to win souls to Jesus and the truth of the Bible. I'm going to skip to the last sentence there. He must also bear in mind that the flock is entrusted to his care and that he is to bear their cases to Jesus and plead for them as Jesus pleads for us with the Father. Again, I'm not saying confess your sins in public to a priest or a pastor. Do not go call Pastor Ben and tell him the wrong things you've done. No. I am saying be real. Don't be a modern-day Pharisee. Now, why am I sharing this? Remember how at the beginning of my sermon, I said this sermon was especially hard to prepare? Now, I've been struggling with God for a while now. And it's been around the time since Sean and I left for our honeymoon in September. And I've been struggling actually with, surprisingly, one thing was games. Which is odd, because growing up, I never really liked games. I never play games. I, never, I found games boring. It's a waste of time. It's not stimulating. My mom banned me from games. So I didn't really like them. But one day, you know, I was scrolling Instagram on my bed in the free time, scrolling. I saw an ad for a game, and I thought I'd just download it to try because it's not harmless. I mean, it's harmless, so I thought. And that try really led me to be addicted to it to a point where I spent real money. I had real friends in the game. My real-life schedule was set according to the game schedule. Monday and Wednesday, eh, Sunday, Wednesday? Monday and Wednesday, clan war, Tuesday and Thursday, pageant voting time. I know exactly what they have. And I arranged my day schedule around the game. I would not go out on Wednesday night because I have something in the game to do then. And you know that, I, 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 some of you might be thinking, oh, it's such a small thing that you're, you're addicted to, that you're sharing with us. Murdery, uh, murdery blood. Murder, adultery, stealing, sins. All the things I held up. But having a game on a phone, sorry, I'm, talk, I'm talking about a phone game, not a video game. That's not really something to talk about, is it? But that's where I stopped doing my devotion. Because the first thing that I looked at in the morning was that game. And the first people I talked to when I faced something you know, wrong were the people in the game, people I never met before. When Sean brought me out on dates, I was constantly playing the game. I was never listening. I was never spending quality, quality time with Sean. And I, was, I knew I was ruining my new marriage and my relationship with God. I stopped praying, and I knew this was wrong because this was becoming something that was more important than God. Now, how do you know? Because it's so harmless as just a phone game, isn't it? That's where I asked myself, God, if you came tomorrow, would I give up this game today? And I was afraid because my answer was no. 
And how could it be that a full-time ministry worker would rather give up salvation than to give up a phone game? Now, that's what Satan does. It's the small things that really get to people. I tried to stop teaching. I tried to stop taking up responsibilities in church. Every time I heard a sermon, I knew God was trying to tell me to come back to Him. Every time I prayed each month, every prayer I, I said, I told God, I'm a fraud. I am an eloquent talker. I'm good at talking. People love my teaching. But I am a hypocrite. I am a Pharisee. I know I don't want to give this up. And I know that my spiritual life affects the people that I come in contact with because as a leader, if I suffer, they suffer too. But I don't want to give this up because I don't want to, I have no meaning to life. My, even like hints of my depression in the past came back as well because I wasn't just feeling guilty, but I was feeling so ashamed that I could stumble so far for a very small thing, an ad on Instagram. Now, one day I heard this sermon on Audioverse that my husband was playing, where for the first time I heard someone say in a sermon, God doesn't need you to be willing. God will help you to be willing if you just ask him. God doesn't need you to repent. God will give you repentance if you just ask him. And so I started to pray, God, I am not willing to give up this game. Please make me willing. I began to pray, God, I don't want to give this up. Please help me. I don't want to delete this app. I like it. I don't want to quit cold turkey. Please make me willing. And in fact, I was selfish enough to say, God, you know, people always say, in I know Pastor Ben always says this in church, do all it takes to, to save me. And, you know, God will do whatever it takes. He will cut you low. But I had this selfish prayer. I said, God, I don't want that because I'm scared of what you can do. I'm afraid of how low God can really cut me. So I said, don't cut me so low that I can't show my face in church anymore. Have mercy on me, but help me. And now, I wasn't that fast because I prayed this prayer for many, many weeks. And I would tell Sean that I don't want to give up my sin, but I'm asking God to help me. And while inside I believed that I was all lost, but a, I was all but a lost hypocrite, another modern-day Pharisee, deep down in my heart, there was a little thread of faith that somehow I knew God was going to do something. Now, most of you know now that I don't have a phone right now. <laughs> and that's because at the Bible retreat in Cameron Highlands, my very dear friend Amanda pushed me into the pool <laughs> with a phone in my pocket. <laughs> and my phone didn't get wet when she pushed me in because it was a kid's inflatable pool. So the water wasn't very deep. I fell on my left side and my phone was in my right pocket. So it was safe. And I took it out to throw on the grass to make sure it was safe. And Amanda decided to hit my hand <laughs> and make the phone fall in the water. <laughs> so my phone from safe to gone. Now Nunuk, she asked me, she's like, why are you not sad about your phone? I pity you, you poor thing. But you know, I couldn't be happier and I couldn't thank God more that he sent Amanda the rhino <laughs> to push me into the water to get rid of my phone. I couldn't be happier to be without a phone because it never felt happier to quit. For the rest of the retreat, I had no phone. I felt amazing. I did not even miss the game. I didn't even think about it. This was the best Bible worker retreat I ever had. It was the best retreat I've ever had. 
And I heard it God, I woke up, I started to wake up early again because I wasn't playing games late at night. I heard God speak to me in sermons. It was amazing to hear God speak again after so long. And I still don't have my phone now. And I want to be phoneless as long as I can go, for as long as I need to go. And I'm sharing this for three reasons. First, because I need to ask apology from the church for being a leader who has cherished a sin and yet still tried to teach the Bible. And secondly, if I want to preach about being real, then I need to be real myself. And thirdly, that I'm hoping that my testimony, while small, just, you know, will help you to see how patient and kind God can be, that he will not only answer my prayer by giving me willingness to give up sin, but he will even answer my selfish prayer by being merciful about it. He just dropped my phone in water. My sermon today has no frills, no hype up, no hit you, feel good, cry, go home, think, man, that was a good sermon. My sermon today is honest. It's low, it's painful for me to admit. It cuts, it makes me ashamed, ashamed, guilty. But it's one that if I want to challenge our church for, needs to start with me. I'm going to list you some names that might sound familiar, okay? Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, William Miller, and Ellen White. Now, it's an interesting group of people because they're probably the backbone or spine of the Protestant Reformation. Do you want to know what all these people have in common, besides being the backbone and reformers of the Protestant Reformation? There's something... The one thing that all these people have in common is that every one of them suffered from feelings of shame, low self-worth, and the view of God of them that was negative and unhealthy. GC 123.2, Martin Luther, as his convictions of sin deepened, he sought by his own works to obtain pardon and peace. But with all his efforts, his burdened soul found no relief. He was at last driven to the verge of despair. Sounds like depression. John Wesley, GC 253.3, violent storms were encountered on the passage and John Wesley, brought face to face with death, felt that he had not the assurance of peace with God. John Calvin, GC 220.3, but thoughts had been awakened in his mind which he could not banish at will. Conviction of sin fastened upon him. He saw himself without an intercessor in the presence of a holy and just judge. He could see before him nothing but the blackness of eternal despair. William Miller, brought up in a Baptist home, William as a lad had worried seriously for a time about his soul. He tried to find peace by strict obedience to his parents and by sacrificing cherished possessions, but to no avail. And even our beloved Ellen White, who went forward, keenly sensing her sinfulness. She had no feeling of being saved. Her joy in the second coming was soon marked by hellfire preaching from a non-Ventist minister who had made God so cruel that her doubts came back. You know, these reformers, our leaders that set up our church, had all feelings of shame and low self-worth. But when they came to believe the things about themselves that God believed, the world became a different place. What did they come to believe? They came face to face with the greatest act of belief known to men. 
They came to an understanding of God's undying love for them that he would risk the eternal existence of his son to see them saved. People who believed that God was so cruel, people who believed that they had no avail, that they were, who were worried about their souls, people who believed that they had nothing but the blackness of eternal despair, people who believed that they had no peace with God and were on the verge of despair, these people finally believed that God cared for them. We're told in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love, charity, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Why I like this verse so much is because it tells me that God believes all things and hopes all things for you. It means that you don't need to be something more for God to believe all things and hope all things about you. God already loved, already believed in you because you are something more. You are beloved. He paid an infinite price for you because he already saw something of value in you, whether you deserved it or not, even when you sin. In fact, there is nothing you can do to deserve it because you already have it. So what, so, okay, sorry. So what if the very person that you're afraid of in disappointing the most, God, actually believes in you? Scripture tells us he cares, he believes in you. If not, he would not have sent his son on such an expensive errand to see you saved if he really didn't. And ironically enough, because God believes in you, the enemy believes in you as well. And that's why you're wrestling with all these thoughts to begin with. Because Satan can see what you can become in Christ. Satan can see that if he lets you, if lets Christ win, he loses the cream of the crop. He loses someone who would work for him. And when you think this true, right, it means that the only person between the great controversy of Christ and Satan that doesn't believe in you is you yourself. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, William Miller, Ellen White, these were all capable of a great work for God. The enemy knew this, they heaped dark clouds upon them to discourage them from going any further. But a day came when they refused to believe these lies any longer. And the world was changed as a result. What about you? Will you take hold of God's belief in you today? And this is my prayer that God will grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit with the inner man, in the inner man. That you would be able to understand with the faith of all the saints, understand the depth, the height, the width, and the length of the love of Christ that he has for you. You may be filled with all that love as well. When this song plays, I cry because I hear Jesus calling for me to come home. And he doesn't condemn, but he welcomes the struggling and he welcomes the sinning. He pleads for us to come home to the one who truly loves him because Jesus will not give up on you. The question is whether you still hear him calling for you and whether you would be willing not to repent but willing to ask Him to give you the willingness to repent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for allowing us to struggle because it is only in our struggles that we understand that we need you. But I pray that you will not allow us to be discouraged 
You will not allow us to see ourselves as hopeless or as lost just because we struggle. I pray that you will help us to see that indeed you still have power to give us repentance if only we ask. There are many of us here who are not willing even to give up sins that we cherish because it's hard and it's real, it's human. And we feel ashamed because sometimes our church will judge us or we're afraid of what people will say. I just pray first for our church that you give us the open heart to love all, not to love the sin, but to love the people who are struggling by showing them kindness and mercy as you show us, for we are all sinners. But I pray also for us who are struggling that you may give us willingness to repent. You may give us the courage to ask, to tell you that we can't on our own, that we even need you to do something for us, to show us that you can still correct us, you can still bring us back, you can still welcome us home. Help us to ponder on this, the rest, not only for the rest of the Sabbath day, but for the rest of this week as we go home, as we think about how we can better our lives. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.